love the picture of Dallas with his, uh, with his quartet in front of their traveling bus. And he had hair, that's right. That we, we have photographic proof of it, that he had hair at one point in his life, in his checkered past. So This morning we were getting ready to pray for the service and uh, we were having a humorous moment about where almond milk comes from and we were all kind of laughing and then we had to kind of pull it together so we could pray for this morning's service and first thing James prays as we stop is, Lord, thank you for humor. Thank you for the gift of humor. And uh, that was an appropriate prayer at that moment. So, And it's an appropriate prayer at this moment because I'm going to embarrass James. <laughs> this, this story may be apocryphal, but, uh, but I'm going to tell it anyway. James Thorpe once told me that when he inevitably chokes to death on gummy bears, he hopes that people will say he was killed by bears and just leave it at that. <laughs> I always feel better when my doctor says something is normal for my age, but then I think, you know, at some point dying is going to be normal for my age. <laughs> One last one. You should try to treat each day as your last because one day you will be right. Words to live by, huh? So though we begin this message with a little deathly humor, the truth is that we don't talk much about death in pretty much any context, humorous or otherwise. So you might tend to think that death is something that older people think about more. And of course that's true. Statistically, it's true that the older you get, the closer you are to death. But it's something that all of us, more of us even, should think about, even those who are younger. So not so much because any of us could die at any time. That's true, of course, as well. But because the truth about death is so central to the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore that reality this morning. So even the basic age youth among us, I don't want to you to tune out today. I encourage you to stay tuned in to this message today because this is for all of us. Most of you know that my wife and I have experienced a lot of death in our family in the past 18 months. In April 2018, Barb's mom, who lived with us, passed into eternity. And then just last February, her dad, who would have been 90 this past week, uh, went to be with his savior. A little over three weeks ago, my mother discovered the scriptures to be true, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. I said at my mother's graveside service just a little over two weeks ago, that death is the most universal reality that seldom gets discussed. Everybody dies. Hopefully that's not news to anybody here, but everybody dies, or they will die, but no one ever seems to talk about it. The interesting juxtaposition to this is death is seen all the time, fictionally, in movies, on television, but then even also real death or the aftermath of that in news stories and documentaries. There's even a website that has compiled a list of actors who've died the most times on film. Christopher <laughs> Lee wins that dubious prize. He's died 60 times in his 280 movies, including Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, Revenge of the 
SID. Uh, the American Psychiatric Association reports that by age 18, a U.S. youth will have seen 16,000 simulated murders. More than 2.8 million people died in the most recent year for which stats are available in 2017. But unless you experience it with someone close to you, and I know that many of us in this congregation, many of us in this room this morning, have experienced that in the past few years. We don't think about it, and we don't talk about it. But I propose that not thinking about it and not talking about it isn't really a good thing. Why do we not talk about it? Have you ever thought about that? I came up with a list of some reasons, certainly not the only reasons, but it helps us to get thinking about this. Why don't we think or talk about death? I think here's some of the reasons. We don't think or speak about death because it's not real or it doesn't seem real. It's fictional. Uh, we don't think or talk about death because we're young and we haven't seen it up close and personally very often if we've seen it at all. Uh, we might not talk about it because we're young and because of that we think our death is decades away and we have time to think about it later so we just kind of procrastinate. Uh, sometimes we don't think or talk about it because we're afraid of it. Sometimes we don't think or talk about it because we're not necessarily afraid of death itself, but we're afraid of the process. I think most of us would kind of fit into that category. We, don't, we, we are worried about how we're going to die because we've seen how difficult that process is for some of our loved ones. We don't think or talk about it because sometimes there are people who don't believe in an afterlife at all. And there's no comfort at all in just ceasing to exist, which is what a lot of the culture believes. We don't think or talk about it because we do believe in an afterlife, but we don't know where we're headed. So we don't want to face it. We don't want to face that reality. And finally, I think we don't think or talk about it because the fear of the unknown. We don't know what it's going to feel like. We don't know what it's going to look like. We have some examples of scripture, but really the only thing we know for sure from scripture is that the absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So we don't really, scripture doesn't tell us a lot about the process. And even believers sometimes, it's the fear of the unknown that causes us to not talk about these things. So unlike the world and our culture, the Bible talks a lot about death. Jesus spoke quite often about his own death, and the word of God gives us a perspective on death that we cannot find in the world. Because of the Bible's many passages dealing with death, I think it illustrates the importance of remembering death as a reality. But more importantly, remembering the perspective that the Word of God gives us about death. I'm going to quote author Matt McCullough. He wrote a great book called Remembering Death. Some of the thoughts in this morning's message are from that book. And he says that the best way to enjoy your life is to get honest about your death. Let's start with this sobering truth. Anything you do, anything you get in this world is already fading away. You are going to die. And everyone you care about will die. Sometimes we live this life as if that's not true, but it really is. Death makes a statement about who we are, and it makes this statement about all of us. You are not too important to die. We will all die, like those of us, those who've gone before us, and the world will keep moving, as it always has. 
How many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Okay, a handful, right? That's not unusual. I'm not surprised to see so few. Even if you do, how much do you know about them? My children will remember me. My grandchildren may remember me, depending on how old they are when I die. And of course, there are always exceptions to it, and we had a few of these here in the room this morning. But my great-grandchildren may never really know me, and my great-great-grandchildren probably won't even know my name, let alone much about me, what was important to me, what I did. And further down the road we look, the less likely I am to be remembered. In a hundred years, I'll just be a name on a grave marker. And there's stories with that. Have you ever walked around a graveyard? Barb and I did this in Colorado, and a uh, really old graveyard there. And uh, we looked and we realized as we saw the birth and death dates, some of the children, you know, some of the children died very young, some of the adults died very young, and we thought there's a story at each one. But they're just names on a headstone or a grave marker. So the truth is that no one, no one is indispensable. That's a hard thing for us to recognize, and maybe it's even scary. But here's where the rubber of this very rather harsh reality meets the road of biblical truth. If we allow this truth to sink in, this truth about death, the truth of the gospel shines so much more brightly in comparison. The gospel reality is this. The bad news about death is so much worse than we can really even imagine. But the good news, and of course that's what the word gospel means, is so much better than we can comprehend. That's because our faith in Christ as a, our Redeemer is a resurrection faith. There are many passages in Scripture that reinforce this, but perhaps the most complete exposition of this particular line of thinking was done by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. It's no accident that excerpts from this chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians are almost always read at funerals and at graveside committal services. I've had the privilege three times in the last 18 months and once eight years ago when my dad died of reading from this chapter at the graveside of both of my parents and both of Barb's parents. We could read the whole chapter and I kind of encourage you to do that to get the whole context but we're going to read some excerpts from that this morning, a couple extended excerpts. In fact if you have your Bible this morning you might want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because this is incredibly important stuff if we are to truly embrace the truth about death but also to see the corresponding truth about the resurrection shining as a bright contrast to the bad news about death. So we're talking 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we're going to start with reading verses 1 through 4 from the very beginning of the chapter. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So my brothers and sisters, let me echo Paul's message this morning, I would remind you of the gospel 
that I preached to you. This is foundational. This is so important. What do we really believe? When we believe these things that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, we can stand. We can stand. When we believe these things, it isn't just for comfort about the truth of what happens when we die. And it is that, and it does provide that. But it truly impacts the way we live, the way we live our lives. And we're going to see that as we move forward this morning. Paul writes that we should hold fast to this truth. When he writes that this truth is the truth by which we are being saved, he's writing of the process of us becoming more Christ-like. This isn't just about our ticket to heaven. That's part of it too. It's a wonderful part of it. It's about confidence in his redemption. It's about living the Christian life. It's about being changed, being saved, as Paul writes, day by day, and being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. That's how important it is. Paul says what? He says it's of first importance. That's priority, folks. There's nothing more important than these truths that we are examining this morning, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. So because of this, he admonishes us to hold fast to this truth. Then let's jump down to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read an extended excerpt here as Paul begins to make his case. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We don't like to think about that. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul here, he's not just anticipating counter-arguments to the case that he's making. He's being very honest about how critical, how important this part of Christian doctrine really is. If Christ has not been raised, he writes, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So here we are together, folks, hearing the word of God preached. We did it last week. We did it the week before and the week before and the week before and the week before. In fact, we've been doing this as Tulsa Christian Fellowship for 50 years next Sunday. 
That's 2,600 sermons at TCF over a half century on Sunday mornings. And that's not counting Wednesday night or Thursday night teachings, Sunday night teachings. That's not counting other special meetings. And here's the Apostle Paul telling us that if there is no resurrection, if Jesus is still dead and in a tomb somewhere that no one has ever found, we have been wasting our time. That's a lot of time to waste. If we assume an average of 40 minutes per sermon, that's more than 1,800 hours of our lives. I know that each of the elders puts in hours of prayer and study to prepare teaching and preaching from this pulpit and from house churches. I know that our children's church teachers put in hours to prepare. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, it's all in vain. It's empty. That's a literal translation of the word vain. Empty. A waste of time. Or some translations say, useless, without foundation. And here's perhaps the most challenging part of this. He writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's pretty sobering, folks. Futile. Think of the board. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Worthless. Useless. Without purpose. No one wants to hear. Anybody want to hear that about your life? About the things that are important to you? The things that you invest time and energy and years into? Do you want to hear that about your life or the things you do? That's why Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are pitiful. We're pitiful. We're more pitiful than anyone else. Not only have I, if this is true, okay, if this is true, Jesus hasn't been raised. There is no resurrection. I've wasted my time preaching, teaching, and preparing to preach. I've also wasted my time visiting hospitals. I've wasted my time doing weddings, doing funerals. I waste my time building relationships with so many of you, spending time with you, discussing our joys, discussing our challenges, praying with you, dealing with our problems. I've wasted 16 Sunday nights for 26 years in Bible Bowl. And our children have wasted hours memorizing scripture. I'm just pitiful. And so are you. If Jesus hasn't been raised. And the worst part of it is not just my wasted, useless, purposeless life. But when I die, I'm just gone. I'm just gone. Or worse yet, worse yet, the devil wins. And I'll spend eternity with him and his minions. So if that's true, it doesn't really matter how I live or what I do for Christ. It certainly doesn't matter if I resist sin and obey scripture. Paul writes a few verses later in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Big deal. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So if there's no resurrection, what does it matter if I help the poor or the needy? Or remain faithful to my wife of 41 years? Or comfort the sick? Or sacrificially pour my time and energy into someone's life? Or put on a referee shirt and a ball cap on Sunday nights? What does it matter if I'm kind or compassionate? Might as well live like hell. Cheat on my wife. Be a real jerk, blow off Bible Bowl, never bother coming to church. Because 
you know what? If there's no resurrection, there's no heaven to look forward to either, and it's all meaningless, vain, empty. Might as well take up drinking and get really drunk pretty much every day. Why not? Got nothing to lose. Doesn't matter anyway. How I live my life doesn't add up to anything. Folks, these are some of the things that are at stake if there is no resurrection. We have a resurrection faith. And if it's not true, if Jesus hasn't been raised, but thankfully, Paul doesn't end his argument there. He doesn't end his letter there. That would be really depressing, wouldn't it? If it just kind of ended there. But it doesn't end there. He's fully explored the bad news about sin and death. He's looked at an alternate reality, okay? What if there is no resurrection? What if life and death look like in that alternate reality? And then in verse 20, he turns the tables again. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So if death tells us that we're not too important to die, the gospel tells us that we're so important that Christ died for us. And not because death's message about us is wrong. It isn't wrong. We are sinners. We do deserve death. Scripture declares that there's no one righteous. We deserve eternal punishment. We deserve death. Because of that, on our own, we really are disposable. But joined to Christ, through our union with him, we are righteous. We are children of God. And God will not let us die any more than he left Jesus in the grave. Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. Yes, of course, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Scripture tells us others have been raised too, but eventually all of these people still died again. But our resurrection in Christ is forever, and we're next. We're next. Paul concludes this chapter with these words, starting in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and what have we learned in studying Bibles when you see? The therefore, you see, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, so it's all these things that we've just looked at. Because all these things are true. Because Jesus has been raised, right? Because he is in eternity now with the Heavenly Father at the right hand of the Father, okay? And because he is coming back to give us these imperishable bodies. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul reveals that because of Jesus' resurrection, because this perishable body, this body is subject to dying, that body will die, but we'll get a replacement not just a replacement, we'll get an upgrade. 
okay? This is the ultimate upgrade. Just as Jesus has an immortal body, so will we. Here's where the tables are turned on that awful, horrible, bad news about death. Because of our sin, we will die. That's true. But because of Jesus paying for our sin on the cross, and because of his resurrection, death doesn't have the final say. It's not the end. Death ultimately loses this battle. Maybe not today. Because my mother and my father, Barb's parents, many of our loved ones are still in their graves. But death doesn't have the final victory. Death may think it wins every time we lose a loved one in Christ, but it doesn't win ultimately. Which is why we see Paul quoting both Isaiah and Hosea here when he writes, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death does seem to win when someone dies in Christ because they're gone from us. But it's a hollow and a temporary victory. Paul isn't entirely downplaying the sting of death. It's very real. He writes in this chapter as well, we read it a moment ago, that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. So it's still an enemy. But it's an enemy that's already been defeated. We now live in that era of the mop-up phase when death still has a sting and the sting hurts. That's why we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Death is not okay. It's not a part of God's original wish for his creation. It's appropriate and even spiritually and emotionally help, healthy to grieve. But death doesn't win in the end. The final chapter has been written, and God wins, and he destroys death. And those of us who are in Christ live in resurrected bodies with him forever. Now, these kinds of thoughts are especially meaningful when we've recently suffered the loss of a loved one or we're facing that prospect soon. But why should we think about and talk about death when everyone around us is healthy and seemingly going to be with us for a long time? It's easy for that to kind of slip away when we're not experiencing someone's death or it hadn't happened recently or somebody we know is getting ready to die. It's easy for us to get up, caught up in this quest for more in this life. But death steals everything from us in the end anyway. You can't take it with you. I think that's in Hezekiah 9, chapter 7. <laughs> and not just our stuff, okay? Death has taken my mother from me, and I won't enjoy her presence again in this life. I feel cheated. I feel robbed by death. And those of us who've lost parents or spouses or children or siblings or just other people we've known and loved, we feel this sting, don't we? We feel this sting. And we feel it deeply. But when death is not close, sometimes Jesus' promises will seem kind of otherworldly to us. We don't pay that much attention to them. But here's the truth, folks. Jesus doesn't offer more of what death will only steal from us in the end. He offers us righteousness, adoption, God-honoring purpose, eternal life, things that taste sweet to us only when death is a regular companion. Until we recognize this, we can't appreciate the power of the gospel. And we can't 
as it says in 2 Timothy 4.8, we can't long for his appearing. Why would we long for his appearing if death is not a problem? Only when we remember death, only when we realize that the bad news is so much worse than we can imagine are we able to see that the good news of the gospel is so much more amazing than we can imagine. The good news of the gospel shines brightly in sharp contrast to the bad news about death. So if we want to live lives of purpose and meaning and joy, anybody here want to live a life of purpose, meaning, and joy? We all do. We have to look honestly at the problem of death because our purpose, meaning, and joy are brought about by our union with Christ and what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. Our culture today is really obsessed with happiness, kind of at all costs, regardless of what it does to anybody else. Well, death is a challenge to that happiness that our culture doesn't have a good answer for. But our resurrection faith does have a good answer for it. Death is the separation of good things that were not meant to be separated. It separates a person from family and friends. It separates the soul from the body and the body from the earth. Again, death is not okay. We're not saying that this morning, that it's just, oh, it's okay. But by avoiding the subject, except during those times when we're forced to face it, we act as if the bad things about death are not true. And we diminish the incredible reality of Jesus' victory over death and everything that that means for us here, now. If death is not a problem, then Jesus won't be much of a solution. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more we'll be aware of the amazing good news and the truth of the gospel. The more carefully we number our days, and that's another way of saying the more we think about death, but the more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we'll hear that death's days are numbered too. And the more we allow ourselves to grieve the separations that death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. What do we read in Revelation? As we saw earlier, death tells us we're less important than we think we are. The famous, the powerful, the gifted, the brilliant, the beautiful, they all die. But the gospel tells us that we're far more loved than we ever imagined. We're not, important, we're not too important to die, but we're important enough that Jesus died for us. The gospel seen in the light of what death means for us tells us we are important because we are loved. We're not loved because we're important. We remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 21 and 22. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul tells us here that Jesus has made our enemy death. He's made that his enemy. Death isn't a battle we need to fight. Jesus has fought the battle. And you know what? He won. He won. This is the foundational reason for why Paul can state at the very end of this chapter, therefore, 
My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the foundation for our lives is what the Bible calls shifting sand. If we trust in our work or our school or our friends, our money, our stuff, or even some of the really good and godly things in our lives like our relationships or even our family, we trust these things in vain. They're just as empty. They can't bring happiness or joy. We can see them as God's good gifts to us. We can see them as God's uh, ability to bring us things that we enjoy. But even then, they're only temporary. Just as Paul argued about Jesus, if he, if Jesus can't survive the threat of death, our faith in him is in vain too. So we can't trust these things. They won't survive the challenge of death. So Jesus' words might inspire us, but if he's just an example for us to follow, or if he's a man of inspiring words, we're still in our sin, and then death wins. We face it on our own. But because of the resurrection, because death is not my problem to overcome anymore, what I do with my stuff matters, and it matters today. It's not in vain. These things have a purpose, and that purpose is directed toward his kingdom purposes. Paul is very specific here. He says that our labor, quote, in the Lord is not in vain. So that begs a question for all of us. Can we truly say our relationships are in the Lord? If so, they're in vain. Is our work, our school, our use of money, our stuff in the Lord? If so, it's not in vain. If it's in the Lord, it's not in vain. If it's in the Lord, it has eternal meaning because of the resurrection. If not, it's empty and useless because it will never survive the challenge of death. Now this world, hey, we have to admit, it can be a really amazing place. There's a lot of beautiful things in this world. We can enjoy the beauty of creation. We can enjoy music and art and cultures. More than that, we can enjoy the people in our lives. I think most of us would say that that is the, the most beautiful thing in our lives, the people that we love, the people that God has put into our lives. We enjoy those people who are special to us, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our parents and grandparents, brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors, our church family. However, it's the love of these good things. These are good, God-given things. It's the love of these good things in our lives that gives death a lot of its power over us. Because the things we love are eventually taken away. Even the good things given by God, by decay and death. Death's power in this life is stronger than our love. I can love somebody deeply and that person still is going to die. Sobering. And it can feel like death wins when that happens. We can see death's shadows in almost anything if we have eyes to see that. Death isn't so much an event as a process with a final ending. It's an ending that inevitably separates us from what we love so that in the end everyone loses everything. However, when we recognize this truth, and again, maybe even embrace this truth about death, we will begin to see and we will begin to live a deeper, fuller, more realistic joy in the promises of God. 
where the things we love, which are the good things given by God, will never end. The world that Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, promised us, isn't that so much better than anything the world can offer? Isn't that so much more hopeful than much of the world's philosophy that everything is random and purposeless? And the good and bad things that happen in our lives are just dumb luck. Good or bad, just kind of happen. At some graveside services I've done, I've referenced this brief video I'm going to show as we prepare to close. I want to use this to show a clear and compelling contrast between what's become a prevalent worldview with the amazing biblical worldview that we're looking at today. Now, I've shown this video before. I'm sure you all remember it. Not. But it presents the same kind of powerful contrast that I'm hoping we see between the bad news about death and the good news of the gospel. So imagine yourself at a graveside, and instead of reading from the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the person doing the ceremony reads from a book by the atheist Richard Dawkins. were just electrons and selfish gains. Meaningless tragedies like the crashing of the bus are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Did you see the reaction of the grieving mother? She looks up at the guy who's reading. Is that the best you've got at a moment like this? Is that the best you can do? That's all you've got for me in my pain and in my grief? Things happen? Oh, well. My brothers and sisters, we have a resurrection faith. And there's precedent in Scripture even for praying that we'll remember death for this purpose of living this life fully. And that's why Paul is spends a whole chapter explaining why this is so critical, so foundational for our faith. Not so we can look for the pie in the sky, the great by and by. I mean, that's part of it. Yes, definitely. We, I don't want to ever jettison that from our faith. But we can live now in this faith because of the resurrection. We read in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. And again, that's another way of teach us to remember that we die. Why? To number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. The Bill Sullivan paraphrase of this verse says, teach me to remember death so that I can live life in your wisdom. Amen? So, I don't know who of you will be at my graveside service, but I want everyone there to find comfort in words of victory remembering that not a moment of our life in Christ is random or purposeless. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in other words, because of Jesus' victory, over death, because our faith is a resurrection faith, 
Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we have the truth of Scripture not only to give us encouragement and hope for eternal life, but to give us encouragement and hope for this life. Father, we live in a resurrection faith, and we're grateful for that, Father. We're grateful that our lives are not purposeless, that our faith is not in vain, but that Jesus did rise from the dead, and because of that, we can have eternal life with you, and we can have joy and purpose and meaning in this life. Father, help us to live this truth in a very real and a very powerful way, Father. Help us, Heavenly Father, we pray, to remember death, to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom, Father, and know how to best follow you and love you and serve you and be molded and shaped into the image and likeness of Christ throughout the course of our lives. We're grateful for these biblical truths, Father, that give us comfort and encouragement and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.